So I was having a conversation with my mom on the phone the other night. Sorry about that. There we go. Uh, she called. It's about 8:30 at night, uh, which is not unusual. She oftentimes she has a 45 minute commute home uh, after work, um, and so she'll call and then we'll talk just so she can pass the time. Uh, and it was a little late though, around 8:30, and so I asked, "What do you got going on? Why is everything so late?" She said, "Well, I just left. We've got this big work thing at the hospital. She works at a hospital, and apparently it's a big." accreditation thing they have to pass every so often and her job is all for like every two years just work for two years to get the hospital ready for this certification and I guess if she doesn't do her job right like the hospital closes and everybody goes home without a paycheck so it's kind of a big deal and uh, but anyway it was late so she's been work, uh, waking up and leaving the house about 4:45 in the morning and then she'll drive to work, and she'll work till about 8, and then she'll leave. And we don't need to do the math. No, 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 that's a really long work day. And so being concerned, I said, you know, take care of yourself when you can take some time off. Do that. Kind of rest. And then I gave her some advice. I said, if it were me, I'd leave at 6 and just tell them to deal with it. And she said, well, haha, it's not that simple. I said, yes, it is. Come 6 o'clock, you get up, you walk out the door. Like, they're not going to fire you. They can't pass the survey without you. Go home and take care of yourself. That's what I'd do. But between you and me, that's not what I would do at all, right? It's easy to give advice whenever you're not in the situation. And it's easy to have a lot of bluster whenever it's not your job or your circumstances. Truth be told, I don't mind conflict or confrontation. But honestly, if I can avoid it, I will. It's part of life, but it's not pleasant. I think that's true for most people. Given the choice, most of us will probably try to avoid unnecessary conflict. I mean, you take, maybe you put yourself in your own work situation. Maybe you had something happen at your job, and you were frustrated, and you were miffed, and you grumbled, and you said, well, I ought to do this, or I ought to go tell them, give them a piece of my mind. But at the end of the day, did you? Or did we just kind of stuff it down and keep our head down? Because we like the stability of our work situation. Oftentimes, we have this stability that we achieve in life. We don't want to interrupt the equilibrium. Also, it's nice to have a paycheck, right? We want to make sure that that keeps coming in. Or we can look at this in, in different contexts. This past several years, the past three, four years, we've had a lot of very uh, passionate cultural conversations over a whole different range of topics, ranging from healthcare and personal autonomy and politics and race and sex and gender and, and all of these things. Everybody has opinions on these. I mean, you're a person, you have an opinion, but maybe you just kept your opinion to yourself. You didn't want to speak up or speak out because you didn't want to offend somebody or you didn't want to deal with the fallout or you didn't want to have that conversation or that debate. There's a certain stability that we have in life, and we like to maintain that whenever possible. But the unfortunate reality is that sometimes conflict is just unavoidable. It just really genuinely is something we cannot avoid. And sometimes conflict even comes looking for us. And that's kind of what we see in our passage this morning in the book of Matthew chapter 10. Today's message is a continuation of this long series that we've been in called A Year-ish with Jesus. And we are just about halfway through 
I know we're only in chapter 10 today, and there's 28 chapters in Matthew, but we're going to move through some of these really quickly. So we're probably about the halfway point. Today's Matthew chapter 10. If you don't have your Bible with you to turn there and follow along, you can follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our passage along with sermon notes, pull open, ready for us to engage with, get the most out of our time together. So like we said, sometimes conflict is unavoidable, and we see this in the lives of Jesus, in the words of Jesus, rather, and in his disciples' lives. In Matthew chapter 10, here's the context. Jesus has been traveling around Israel for a while, preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God and doing all these miracles, healing people, driving out demons, and his disciples have been watching this for months to a year, maybe, for some time. Now, it's their turn to go out. And it's their turn to preach, and it's their turn to do miracles, and they're going to minister for the first time. And so Jesus gives them like a little pep talk of sorts, as we're going to see, and starts, we'll pick up in verse 5. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any, uh, enter any town of the Samaritans. So don't go to people who are not Jewish. Rather, uh, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim the message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey for, or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. So Jesus says to these guys, I want you to go out and your message, your mission rather, is to go preach the kingdom of God. And just as a refresher, in case you you missed it one of the past weeks, the kingdom of God is this message that God is in charge now. We tried it our way. We kind of mucked it up and made a mess of things. Jesus' main mission was to preach this message, God's in charge. He is making things right. He's bringing justice into an unjust world. And he was moving history to this conclusion where everybody rightfully praises him. That's good news, right? So that's what they're supposed to do. Preach it and then go heal people. Who doesn't like that? So these guys have a pretty sweet gig, really. Who wouldn't enjoy having them in their village? Well, apparently some people, because we keep reading in verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust from your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So not everybody is going to like the disciples and their message. You would think this is a good thing, talking about forgiveness of sins, talking about healing, talking about justice, literally physically healing people. But some people are just going to say, no thanks. And Jesus tells his disciples, just deal with it. Like some people just aren't going to like you. I know that's hard for some of us to accept. Like, if you're a people pleaser, it really bothers us that somebody just may genuinely not like us for no reason. But Jesus says, shake it off and move along. It's okay. If somebody's unfriendly, it's not the end of the world. But it gets a little more serious as we keep reading. Let's look at verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard, for you will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings and witnesses, or as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So things get a little more serious. 
It's a little more than just people may be unfriendly or unkind to give you dirty looks. It becomes a matter of you may get arrested. There may be legal consequences for going out and preaching this message. You may have to deal with publicly funded prosecutors. You may even suffer physical harm. Now remember, this is a pep talk that Jesus has given. And we might be saying, Jesus, I'm not sure you've done this before. And he's going to prove that even more as we keep reading. Look at verse 21. It says, Brother will betray brother to death, and the father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So we went from, you know, some people may not like you, that's okay, to your kids may hand you over to be executed, which is a big spectrum of difficulty and conflict. Can we agree on that? So how did we get there? How did we start off with some people may be unfriendly to you may be betrayed by your loved ones and executed? Well, I think it's helpful to look at verse 15 as sort of a, a breaking point, like a page break. And everything from verse 15 onward really doesn't apply to the disciples in this immediate situation. They're going to go out. There's going to be unfriendly people and so on. But really, verse 15 on, Jesus is kind of speaking to the church and the future struggles that they will have. And we know that because the church went through all of these things. The faith was not an easy faith to adopt in the early days. There were legal consequences. There were physical consequences. There were families that betrayed one another. They handed them over to authorities. There were executions. We read about one in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. This has been a faith that just naturally invites conflict. And we might ask why. I mean, you look at what the disciples were given, this message. Go out. Talk about the good things of God's presence. Heal people. How in the world could that invite such, such retribution? But the reality is, some people just do not want the kingdom of God. Again, the kingdom is this message that God is in charge. The problem is, if God's in charge, I'm not. If God is in charge, I don't get to define my own reality, my own truth, my own morality, my own perspective on the world. If God's in charge, I answer to him, and I don't get to be God. And that may sound extreme, but that really is the oldest continual temptation that humanity has faced since the beginning. You go back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. A certain the serpent tempts Eve. She, he says, eat the fruit. Eat, Eve says, I don't want to eat the fruit. God said, I'll die. And, and what does the serpent say? You won't surely die. God knows that your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing both good and evil. It's the temptation to stand in God's place. And that's a temptation that you and I and every human being ever since has ever faced. We want to be on the throne. But the kingdom says God sits there. And sometimes that message is so existentially threatening that people just revolt against the messenger. You've heard that phrase, don't shoot the messenger. We've all probably maybe said that in our life. It kind of acknowledges that people have a tendency when they don't like the message to take it out on the one speaking it. And that's essentially what Jesus is warning about. They will shoot the messenger. And we might be tempted to hear this and say, well, I'm sure the church had to deal with this way back then, right? Surely things have changed. We don't deal with these kind of conflicts and struggles today. But that's just absolutely not the case. In fact, just this week, 
Uh, it, actually, it was last week. Uh, there's a, a magazine, a publication I get in my inbox uh, from a, an organization. has a story this month of May, uh, May's issue, of a girl named Maggie DeJong. Maggie is a 20-something young woman, uh, and she wants to be a counselor who utilizes art therapy to counsel and treat children who have developmental and social disabilities. An incredibly noble ambition. You don't go into a field like that unless you have a heart for people. And she does have a heart for people because of her very fervent Christian faith. She was raised in the faith. She has a Christian worldview. She speaks boldly about the faith, compassionately and kindly, but very forthright. And it just so happens that one of the best and most elite programs for this kind of training uh, is located at SIU Edwardsville, just three hours south of here. It's a school my family and I used to live about 20 minutes from. And so she enrolled in this program. It's very elite. They only accept about 22 students into their graduate program per year. Maggie got in. And she learned very quickly that the perspectives and ideologies undergirding that program were just fundamentally different than what she herself believed and how she thought. And it actually came to the point where she thought a lot of these ways of thinking were kind of hurting clients and children more than helping them. And so she began to speak up kindly, again, politely, respectfully, but she would push back in class discussions or she would prevent, present uh, alternative views or different perspectives, a Christian perspective on things. That was in the classroom. She would have conversations with her 22 cohorts uh, outside of the classroom through different social media messaging and so on. She would present her views and say, this is why I believe what I believe, and I know this is your view, but here's where I see it lacking. And then other people in turn would critique her own Christian worldview. And that's, that's how education is supposed to work. You say what you got to say. I say what I got to say. We compare. We debate. We see the merits and the, the, the weaknesses of both, and probably, hopefully, both of us emerge a little more enlightened and with sharper thinking as a result. That's education. But that's not how education apparently happens at this program at SIU Edwardsville, because Maggie got not one, not two, but three letters from three different school administrators in her inbox, all within 15 minutes of each other, so they were kind of talking about this, notifying her that she was under a zero contact order with three of her 22 classmates apparently saying, I think men are men, and that race doesn't really depend or determine our outcomes in life, is so offensive that they felt physically threatened. So zero contact means that she could not participate in live class discussions or be in the room. She had to tune in online, and even then she could listen, but she couldn't type necessarily. At times, she wasn't allowed to cross to the other side of the campus like physically in case she would run into one of these students because that would violate the zero contact order, and the consequences of which included but were not limited to expulsion. But it went beyond that. Pretty soon, Maggie's comments and private messages were leaked uh, and she was written about in a student-led publication and called racist and homophobic and every ism and ist that you're supposed to be whenever you have this particular worldview. And then one of her comments that she had made in a conversation, I have this belief because of my faith in Jesus Christ, it was taken, it was turned into a public uh, student uh, art exhibit, uh, and the title of that was called The Crushing Weight of Microaggressions. And then Maggie started to realize that these professors who were so perturbed with her views and her pushing back on ideas were the ones that were going to determine if she graduated and likely were the ones that would determine whether or not she could find employment afterwards. And all of a sudden, her outlook on life started to look pretty dim and bleak. And she lost sleep, and she lost weight, and she developed chest pains. And this girl's reputation was drugged through the mud, and her future's put in jeopardy. 
because she said true things in a loving and kind way, because she spoke up. That happened in May. The story was published in May of this year, and it's one of half a dozen stories I get in my inbox basically every other month. We still live in a world where this faith invites conflict. And we may be tempted to think, well, why didn't this girl just keep her mouth shut and keep her head down? I mean, she doesn't have to believe the stuff that she's teaching or, write, or hearing and, and writing about. You know, she can keep her own personal views. But that kind of goes back to what we said earlier. Given the choice, most of us want to avoid conflict. We want to avoid rocking the boat. We want to maintain that, that stability in our lives. But doing so kind of puts our faithfulness to our convictions in conflict. Or I should say, puts us in conflict with our convictions. It's a better way to say that. Because sometimes keeping our head down and our mouth shut means overlooking things that are wrong, morally, socially. Sometimes keeping our head down and keeping our mouth shut is just a silent way of denying things that are true and right. And there's going to be conflict in our lives one way or the other. We're either going to be in conflict with other people or we're going to be in conflict with our convictions and our faith. Sometimes it is unavoidable. The choice that we have is not conflict or stability. It is which conflict we're going to deal with in our lives. That's Jesus' pep talk. But it doesn't end there, thankfully. He almost seems to recognize that there is a temptation to shrink back from conflict to maintain that stability. So he gives us some encouragement. And he gives us some hard truths along the way, but he gives us words of encouragement with them that can kind of bolster our spirits when we feel that temptation to shrink back and just keep our head down, our mouth shut, and sort of silently deny what is true. The first one is this. When you find yourself in the middle of that conflict, remember who stands amidst or among you or stands with you in the middle of the conflict. He goes on to tell his disciples this. If we look at verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for, uh, it is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So to paraphrase, Jesus is saying, they're going to treat you the same way they treat me. And up to this time point, Jesus has been ridiculed by the religious leaders. He's been accused of being demon-possessed. That's where that Beelzebul comment comes in. And if you know the story of the gospel, you know that he's going to be persecuted to the point of death as they crucify him on a cross and they wrongfully convict him. Like Jesus is going to be run through the ringer on this. And he's saying to his disciples, if that's how they treat me, if that's how they treat the teacher, how do you think they're going to teach, treat the students? It's kind of like that game that we played as a kid, follow the leader, pretty simple game. Follow the leader, the person in front. You go where they go. And if the leader walks through this big nasty mud puddle and comes out on the other side all covered in gunk and muck. It's your job, if you follow him, to go through that same mud puddle. We have no earthly business believing we are going to be the exception to the rule, that somehow we're going to come out with like white linen pants just looking all great and sparkly. It's not going to happen. If we follow the leader through that mud, we're probably going to come out just as muddy and grimy. And in that same way, if they treated Jesus harshly, if there was conflict in his life, if they persecuted him, what he's saying to his followers is they're probably going to treat you the exact same way. But there's kind of an, a silver lining to that a little bit. Because if we are experiencing conflict because of our faith, it means that our lives look so much like Jesus that people are treating us like Jesus. And isn't that kind of the point of our faith? 
to look so much like our Savior that people see him when they look at us? That's kind of what happens. That's the flip side of this. And that's not a bad thing. Where I went to college, I had three different preaching professors through all my classes and seminars, and every single one of them, it's almost like they got together and like wrote a book on the one-liners they wanted to share with us. But every single one of them, every semester would say this, something like this. In your life, you are inevitably going to preach a sermon that upsets somebody. But don't take that as a sign that it was a bad sermon. Jesus was the greatest preacher that ever lived, and they crucified him. So if somebody reams you after a Sunday morning because you preached faithfully, take that as a compliment that you stand in good company. And that's sort of the same thing with our lives, too. If we are respectfully, and that's an important word to couch all this in, if we are respectfully standing on the truths of the gospel, and we are kindly, that's another really important word to couch this in, if we are kindly standing against or dissenting against what is wrong or wicked, and we experience conflict and consequence because of that, that's not a bad thing. That means we're walking the road with Jesus. He's with us in the middle of that conflict. Now, if you're just a big old fat butthead, and then you billy club people with the truth, and you're Bible thumping in a very unkind way, and then you experience consequence, you deserve what you get, frankly. That's not how Jesus did things. But if we can speak with kindness, respect, graciousness, and consequence still comes, that's okay. That's the road Jesus walked. We're walking with him in the middle of this. Take that as a compliment. Remember who's with us in the middle of the conflict. Here's another word of wisdom. Remember the difference between what is immediate and what is important. We talk about this principle in different contexts a lot. Uh, It's one of my favorite principles, really because it's something to lose sight of. In this context, let's read what Jesus has to say and see how it fits in. This is verse uh, 26. He says, So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, that doesn't sound super encouraging, but actually there is a little bit of important information in there. If Again, if I could paraphrase, do not fear people who may ridicule or who may bring consequence into your life today. Because all of that consequence, all that conflict is limited to the now. It doesn't endure on and on for eternity. It doesn't follow you for all of existence. It is limited to the few short decades that we tread this earth, and then it's done. It's immediate, but it's not necessarily important. And that's an important distinction to understand because sometimes immediate things, because they're right here, right now, in front of our face, they seem important. My youngest son, Ben, uh, he, he's, he'll be four. Uh, for the last two years, we've had a, an unshakable, unwavering morning routine. Every morning for two years, we wake up, we go stand in front of the pantry. I say, Ben, what do you want for breakfast today? Every day, he says, I want a sweet snack. Every day, I say, no, we have to eat healthy things. He's a bit of a sugar fiend. And then he's got a little better recently. But again, for like a year and a half, I would say, no, we have to eat healthy things. I want a sweet snack, right? And then he falls on the floor, and he cries, and he sobs, and he throws a little fit. 
And, and it's annoying. It's very immediate, right? Because it's right here, right now, loudly on my floor before I've had even a drop of coffee in my system. It's a lot. And it would be very tempting to think, I got to do something about this. I got to solve this problem. Somebody get this, some, this kid some sugar ASAP. Like, right? But it's not really an important problem. It's immediate, but it's not important. What is important is making sure he eats a healthy diet of like fruits and vegetables and grains. What is important is making sure that we establish dietary habits that are going to stay with him for years and decades to come that will sustain him. That's important. The problem is all of that stuff isn't really pertinent to the here and now. It's sort of big picture stuff. And oftentimes important things are those big picture things that don't immediately impact us right here, right now, but they do impact us in huge life-shaping ways. There's a difference between what is immediate and what is important. The suffering or the consequence we may experience today, it's immediate. It's right here, right now in our faces, but it's not going to shape eternity. There is a word, however, as Jesus says, that is enduring and that is eternal. And that goes on and on and on forever beyond what our imaginations can even begin to dream up or comprehend. And it's the judgment of the Lord. The one who, as Jesus puts it, doesn't just destroy the body but the soul. His word is final and enduring. And again, there's a choice to be made here. Do we want to deal with immediate stuff? Do we want to acquiesce so that we have stability now? but conflict later on when it counts? Or do we just want to deal with the conflict today so that when we stand before the Lord, we can have stability and peace forever? That's the choice. And that kind of leads into the third bit of wisdom that Jesus gives us, this encouraging word that loyalty is rewarded. And I realized as I was writing that, we kind of sound like we're in the mob, really. But it's true, loyalty is rewarded. On the flip side of that, disloyalty is not forgotten. Look at what Jesus writes in verse 32. It says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge uh, before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Or whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Sometimes there's this misnomer that Jesus' main prerogative in coming to the world was to preach this message of peace and love and everybody getting along, like that was the main goal. And that's a little misguided because that wasn't really Jesus' main goal or message. As we already said, his main message was the kingdom of God. God's in charge now. And there's good that comes with that. There's a ton of blessing. There's forgiveness of sins. There's reunion with God. There's peace amongst those who seek to reconcile with one another. There's eternal life. There's a huge, huge blessing. Maybe the thing I'm most excited about is to see God set things right once and for all and forever. The kingdom of God is an amazing message. But as we said, there are some that just simply do not want that because if God is in charge, I'm not. And there will naturally be a division between those two fundamentally opposing worldviews and ideas. 
And the sad reality is that sometimes that dividing line takes place between some of the most intimate relationships of our lives. And Jesus touched on this. Sometimes that dividing line takes place between parent and child. Sometimes brother and sister. Sometimes good and dear friends. And we love these people so much. We want this relationship to have unity. We want it to have, we want it to thrive and to flourish. We love them so much that there's a temptation to compromise or to acquiesce, to shrink back from our faith. And that's what Jesus warns about. There's a choice that has to be made between loving people who do not love God or choosing to stand with the God who loves us so much that he sent a son and died for us. And that doesn't mean rejecting everybody that has a fundamentally different worldview, not at all. But at the end of the day, it also means standing firm on the tenets of the faith and to our convictions and refusing to shrink back or acquiesce. We do not accept and promote what is evil. We do not deny what is good and what is true and what is right and holy. Sometimes there's a choice to be made. And that's where the encouragement comes in. Loyalty, as Jesus says, is rewarded. If we acknowledge him before man, he will acknowledge us before his Father in heaven. That's a way of saying he will bestow upon us life in God's eternal kingdom, this eternal reward we all seek for and hunger for deep in the recesses of our hearts. I've been reading a lot about the Revolutionary War lately, and it's really weird. I haven't aimed for it. It just shows up in my Google searches a lot. So I've been reading up on this. And sometimes there's this misconception that there's a very clear dividing line. Like all the colonials were on one side and all the British were on one side. In reality, a lot of the colonists were divided. There were a large number of them that actually wanted to stay loyal to the British crown because they were very comfortable. They benefited from it. There was stability in their life. And revolution, well, that would have disrupted their life. But after the war was all said and done and everything shook out and the, the colonists had won, those people, those people that were, had betrayed the cause, who were disloyal to the colonies, it's not like all that was just overlooked or forgotten. It's about 70 to 80,000 people were expelled from the American states. Some of them took refuge in Canada. Some of them had to go back to Britain. And eight states went so far as to ratify a law that said, if you come back here, we will kill you. Disloyalty was not forgotten. But all those colonists that paid the price, all of them that took upon themselves the cause and that gave of themselves and that served and supported, even it was difficult, even when their lives were unstable and thrown out of whack, those people were rewarded. They received this new land with new representation and new freedom where they got to create a new nation that would shape the trajectory of the entire planet. Loyalty is rewarded. Again, I know that makes it sound like we're in the mob a little bit, but when we're brought into the family of God, there is a reward. There is a gift he longs to give us, but he calls us to follow and to walk in a loyal way, even when it's difficult, even when it's challenging. And so these are the encouraging words that Jesus gives us. Don't forget he stands with us in the middle of the conflict. We're riding or walking that road that he already walked. Don't forget the difference between what is immediate and what is ultimately important. And most of all, keep your eyes set on the reward. That reward that we yearn for and long for. That reward comes to those who are faithful and loyal to him. It's difficult sometimes to navigate the precarious nature of our day and age because there's a lot of potentially explosive conversations and topics and landmines we feel we have to tiptoe around. And Jesus would encourage us, be respectful, be kindful, be kindful, be kind, be gracious, right? 
Don't make up words when you're at preaching to people. It's probably the biggest sin. But he encourages us, be kind, but at the same time, be faithful. That's how we navigate this world and we seek to live faithfully to Jesus amidst the conflict. Can I pray for you? Father, I thank you for this word and this challenge. And it is difficult. Sometimes it, is, it seems way easier to just shut up and sit down, not say anything, keep our heads down. And yet doing so, Father, oftentimes leads us to betray that which means the most to us. And sometimes we end up inadvertently giving approval to what is wicked and evil and wrong. And sometimes we inadvertently end up denying what is true and what is right and what is of you. And so I pray that you give us a boldness, a boldness that is tempered by kindness and humility, that we would stand for the gospel, that we would share the good news of what Jesus does in our lives, the good news of what the kingdom is doing in this world. And I pray that you would give us this reminder that you are with us in the middle of this, that you would be with your churches, not just in this congregation and not even in this community alone, but your churches across the world, that we may speak the good news of Jesus and bring glory to you. Give us that confidence and let us set our eyes on the eternal reward that awaits us, that we might be faithful to you in every way. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.